Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel any time. Can I be real for a second? That goal you have to exercise and eat better, you really can do it. But nobody is going to do it for you. And nobody has to because you can do it if you have the right tools and a community that cares about helping you get results. And that's us, Beachbody. It's as convenient as your TV or laptop, but you need to decide that you're worth it. Let us help you succeed. Here's how. Go to Beachbody.com to claim your free membership and start feeling great. Hello, everyone. It's time to eat, drink, and be merry with your hosts, Lisa and Nancy. Welcome to Big Blend Radio's special World of Wine show. Our first segment features journalist Kevin Bigos, who discusses the research behind his fascinating new book. It's called Tasting the Past, the Science of Flavor and the Search for the Origins of Wine. Then we discuss the world of vegan wines with Frances Gonzalez, the founder of veganwines.com. She travels the world in search of vegan wines to deliver them right to your door. And then sommelier wine and travel writer Hilary Larson is back on Big Blend Radio. She's a co-founder of North Winds Wine Consulting, and with Summer here, she's sharing tips on wine temperatures. And of course, we have some awesome wine-themed music. We've got blues singer-songwriter Allison August, Austin-based singer-songwriter Shelley King, and New Orleans-based blues hound Johnny Master on the Mama's Boys. We want to thank today's show sponsors, the International Food, Wine, and Travel Writers Association. They're a global network of journalists who cover the hospitality and lifestyle fields and the people who promote them. Check them out at ifwtwa.org. And also Jeremy's on the Hill California-style bistro serving farm-to-table food and local beers and wines up in San Diego, California's beautiful mountain country. You can visit them at jeremysonthehill.com. He's got some great recipes too. So sit back, pour yourself a glass of wine and enjoy the wine time chit chat. Have you ever wondered where the world of wine began? What grapes were used and what did the wine taste like? Well, journalist Kevin Bigos, a former MIT Knight Science Journalism Fellow and former AP correspondent, was inspired to seek answers to these questions and he's covered it all in his his really fascinating new book. It's called Tasting the Past, The Science of Flavor and the Search for the Origins of Wine. It's out now through Algonquin Books and, of course, Amazon, and you can go to Barnes & Noble, all those great places. But you can also go to his website, kevinbegos.com, and that's Kevin, B-E-G-O-S, kevinbegos.com. We're really thrilled to have Kevin join us here on Big Blend Radio today because, hey, we always like to talk about wine here on Big Blend Radio. Welcome, Kevin. How are you? Great, Lisa. How are you? Oh, doing great. You know, I heard about your book and I thought, oh, we're going to get into, you know, it's going to be like heavy science, like an encyclopedia. I had no idea that it was going to start in Jordan with a mini bar in a hotel room and take me on a mystery tour. I had no idea it was a mystery novel. <laughs> it's great. I know. And I, 10 years ago, I had no idea where it was going to lead me either. It started by accident and I certainly wasn't expecting 
to find good, interesting wine in Amman, Jordan. But that was my preconception that I had to yeah. find out was wrong. And and from a mini bar, no less. That that was the interesting part too. That it was in a mini bar in a hotel yep. room. Yeah, it turned out they just uh, the the winery itself, Cremasan Winery, is actually not far away in Bethlehem, um, in Israel, in the Palestinian territory. So they just had a nearby distributor that was supplying the Amman Hotel. Wow, this is really fascinating to me. We've had a, a few travel writers uh, who have gone over to Jordan. And I remember watching their social media as they were off traveling. And I'm like, look at all this wine. Who thought about wine in Jordan? And uh, I know Linda Kassam, she was on a travel ride and she came on, you know, and she said Jordan was, you know, a trip of a lifetime. It was one of those things that you just see when places that are just blows your mind. And, you know, one minute you're off on a camel and the next minute you're in a really fancy resort hotel. And she was talking about the wines being absolutely incredible over there. Uh, and different to here, what we're getting in, in California or, or the, the, the States as, as a whole, because she just said the flavors were different. And then reading your book, um, I'm discovering that we basically are limited in, in what we're drinking. And that's not good. <laughs> I know. We're, I spent a lot of my life drinking, you know, the usual Chardonnays and Merlots and Cabernets, and they can be great, but they're, they're literally hundreds of other wonderful wines around the world, especially in each region. Just like there's slow food, you know, regional food and heirloom vegetables in each region. And from the Middle East to Greece to Sicily and now even in America, people are rediscovering these native. And you also have to go into the whole DNA part. I know you've done a lot of um, interviews with scientists and I know you write science. You know, that, that's the thing, doing science journalism. And usually... My brain goes, uh oh, I'm going to have to learn something. I'm going to have to like go back to school on this. And and your book reads so easy. Uh, it's, that's why I want people to know. Um, you don't have to have a science degree to read and understand this. But this is fascinating. I I know we've got we're connected to trees DNA wise, but I didn't know that we're uh, connected through grapes too. Yes, we do actually share some DNA back to some distant ancestor, but. Uh, just like we do our own genealogy, scientists started to check out the DNA of grapes and find their genealogy and, you know, where they originated 8,000 years ago, which is probably the Caucasus Mountains, Armenia, Republic of Georgia. Um, mm. So it's just kind of a, a, a genealogy for plants, for grapevines. Through the grapevines. And so when you look at the research that you did, I know that you kind of had this going like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm going to be able to find this wine over here in the States once you've had it over in Jordan. And you, you, it wasn't readily available. Uh, you say that you started this journey 10 years ago, but there's a lot of research to actually find out. You, it took you a while to even find out where, where to get this wine. Yes. In the beginning, I just hit a dead end um, because, you know, nobody was importing the wine. None of the experts had tasted it. Um, and it turned out they were using grapes that have been in the Middle East for probably 2,000 years, Hamdani and Jandali wow. grapes uh, grown around Bethlehem and uh, Jerusalem and that area. But, you know, nobody was looking at those wines 10 years ago. And slowly it's changed over the last five years. Uh, they're still pretty obscure, but they're starting to be exported into the U.S. and um Mm. London and uh, Yotam Atalengi, the uh, great Middle Eastern chef, uh, is a big fan of the Kermesan wines. And so when you're drinking these wines, it's, it's the grapes are coming from, it's still from these ancient, 
you know, grapevines, right? These these are the, the ancient ones. So, um, or are they newly grafted? No, the, you know, some of the vines are 100 or 200 years, 150 years old, but yeah, they would be grafted. So that's still the same genetic variety. It doesn't mm-hmm. change because they're not planting from seed, but grapevines have a pretty tough time surviving beyond a couple of hundred years. Um, I mean, there might be some, but so it's the same variety, but would be grafted. They would keep grafting in the same location. So really, so wine came from basically the Middle East area, right? Or where, where exactly? A little, a, a little bit ahead. east. Um, Armenia and the Republic of Georgia are like the headwaters of the Turtle Crescent, those early civilizations, Babylon and the Hittites and north of Baghdad, basically. Um, and they're, you know, the Caucasus Mountains are very beautiful, but, you know, more than 10,000 feet high in some places and full of rivers and valleys and streams. So it was a perfect place for vines to grow. And and this is the interesting, you know, we think about, you know, the spice routes, you know, and there's the trade routes. And even here in America, we've is ancient trails, you know, and, you know, the Spanish coming through and, and that brought in some interesting wine too. Uh, here in the Southwest, you know, um, we have, you know, some, some missions and they're of course going up California coast and Texas, there's missions. And whenever there's a mission, there's either a bakery, a brewery or a wine or something, you know, that the monks brought with them. And so when you think about, you know, where you traveled and then looking at these ancient wine routes, I didn't even think that there were wine routes. You know, I always thought, oh, because of the missions here, you know, that we're used to going to, I just didn't think of it in this kind of global fashion for some reason. Yeah, both, as you said, those Spanish monks and really monks all over the world and travelers, one of the first things they exported was uh, wine and grapes, partially because it was profitable, but also, you know, people drank a lot of wine in ancient times because uh, in some ways the water was was dangerous because they didn't understand sanitation. So they would Mm -hmm. often you know, cut the water with wine so that the alcohol killed some of the germs. And they didn't understand why that was happening, but they knew that, you know, sometimes people got belly aches just from the water. Well, I would have no problem having wine as my daily <laughs> my daily drink. You know what I mean? That's a, that's a good thing. Especially so, how many, you know, when you think about now in America, where, what's our future look like um, in regards? Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel any time. Can I be real for a second? That goal you have to exercise and eat better, you really can do it. But nobody is going to do it for you. And nobody has to because you can do it if you have the right tools and a community that cares about helping you get results. And that's us, Beachbody. It's as convenient as your TV or laptop, but you need to decide that you're worth it. Let us help you succeed. Here's how. Go to Beachbody.com to claim your free membership and start feeling great. Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel any time. Can I be real for a second? That goal you have to exercise and eat better, you really can do it. But nobody is going to do it for you. And nobody has to because you can do it if you have the right tools and a community that cares about helping you get results. And that's us, Beachbody. It's as convenient as your TV or laptop, but you need to decide that you're worth it. Let us help you succeed. Here's how. Go to Beachbody.com to claim your free membership and start feeling great. To expanding uh, scientists in the actually scientists all over the country from Cornell to the University of California Davis to Minnesota are re-exploring the Native American grapevines which always had a terrible reputation for wine um, Concord grapes make good jelly <laughs> you know I think right. we've all had peanut butter and jelly sandwich um, 
but they never had a good wine reputation. And it turns out in those Native American grapes, there's just little parts of the gene of the DNA that express these off flavors. So they think they're soon going to get to the point where they can have American wine grapes or crossbreed them with uh, the European grapes and, you know, have some some really local uh, grapes and vines that make good wine. Mm. So these, when you're saying these native, you know, vines, I mean, you know, just hiking around, there's like native grapes, there's wild grapes. Is that what you're talking about? The the wild grapes that are out there just out in the trails? And exactly. The yes. There's a, there's a whole range of wild grapes in America and Europe too. But, um, you know, the wild American grapes, nobody ever paid much attention to, but, Turns out they say have some natural disease resistance, which could help wine growers re- reduce pesticide use. And, you know, they have a lot of good qualities. They've just been overlooked. Uh, it's just a matter of, you know, finding the ones that don't. Uh, and there's a, a Vitus Arizonica in Arizona and a Vitus Mustangus in, you know, hmm. West Texas and uh, New Mexico uh, that are part of the same Vitus grape genome, just not exactly the same as the European grapes. Wow, this would be so cool if we started making wine that way, <laughs> you know, so we could actually, I, I love this idea of going back to our roots, you know, because I feel like just even in our food, you talk about slow food, that we got to this, we've got to this point, even, um, you know, it's like we have the same turkey, everybody's eating the same turkey, and we've like, you know, I know there's some turkey breeders out there doing some heirloom turkey breeding, which is necessary because we're, we're almost losing turkeys. I mean, it just got to sure. everybody has the typical white turkey. And, and we start to think about all of, you know, not just with livestock, but, you know, the plants, the, the wheats and, and everything. We're starting to lose those heirloom seeds. And I know there's a great movement to fix that. And I often wonder, like, okay, now we're limited in what we're eating and drinking. We're not doing a good thing necessarily to the soil, I don't think, by growing that way and not going with what belongs there, the native plants that, that belong there. That's absolutely true. Uh, uh, one wine scientist in California said, look, you know, there's native grapes all over the world that grow best in particular locations. Um, you know, we've the French grapes are great, but really we shouldn't be planting Chardonnay and Merlot and Pinot all over the world because they're, you know, they do well in certain climates, but they don't necessarily do well in hot climates or very cold or native right. to parts of France. And so, as you said, the the native grapes and the varieties can really do better and be better for the whole ecosystem uh, and just transplanting a, a monoculture. Well, you even look now with, you know, the larger wineries, you know, you get these reports now that there's arsenic in our wine, you know, so it's, it's in the pesticides that a friend who, unfortunately she's passed now from cancer and she lived, you know, on a farm right outside a winery, uh, you know, a, a vineyard. And apparently, even though it was organic, there was still some chemicals being used in places. And she kept saying, you know, she she was getting sick. And we all kind of attribute some of this illness from the pesticides that are being used in wine. And and I wonder about that. I always think about every time you, you know, raise a glass, I'm like, okay, we need to really start questioning our wine and what was used, you know, in the process and in the growing process. Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's a tragedy because the wines themselves are probably are fine to drink, you know, the, it, but the pesticides do go into the surrounding communities and into the soil and into the streams. And, 
into the runoff. So, you know, they're definitely not good for the environment. Um, and if there's a way to naturally reduce those by, you know, breeding in some of these naturally disease-resistant plants, um, you know, they just have natural resistance to to some of these pests that attack grapevines. So that seems to me like a far better way to go. And then what about, what's the synthetic wine that are, they're made without grapes? Well, you know, theoretically, you know, the flavors in wine are all chemicals. And if you can identify the exact chemical, which they have in some cases, you know, what, know exactly what chemical, you know, leads to a grapefruit flavor or a peppery flavor. So theoretically, if you have the formula, you could create something uh, with a mix of, you know, water and uh, alcohol that would closely mimic a wine. You know, I'm not that excited about the idea, but I realize it's, I think mm-hmm. people are going to keep trying to do it. I don't think it'll ever compete with the natural product. Um, but, you know, maybe someday there'll be a, you know, a cheap wine that's synthetic. I want I want the real stuff. <laughs> just the thing about it. Me there's too. just even the there's the crafting of it. And that's that's you know, exciting thinking about going towards the native grapes and I I think it opens doors for creativity and um you know, just because it is a craft. You know, winemaking is, is just a, an incredible process and it's painstaking. You know, not only are you, you know, having to harvest and grow, you know, these vines and these grapes, but um, and deal with the weather and the soil and everything that's going on. Um, but then there's the actual process and it takes time. <laughs> that's the thing. It's not like beer where you can sure, make it and it, ties, it ties into local traditions. In Georgia, the Republic of Georgia, we've grown grapes for 8,000 years. They're incredibly proud of their traditions, um, you know, that mm-hmm. predate all the French and the Italians and all that. Uh, you know, they have traditions, winemaking traditions passed down for literally thousands of years. They used the same clay containers. Uh, they called them quevery, but we might call them amphora, what the, similar to what the Greeks and Romans used to transport wine. They still make wine in those clay containers, similar to the way they were doing it 8,000 years ago. Wow. That's amazing. That's amazing. So you got to go out to all these places and interview these people and, and get into that. I mean, did you even, I mean, what was the, what, it's got to be different, but similar in a way to, you know, your previous reporting and, and being in the world of science. Um, but, but, you know, just really neat playing with wine and clay and, and you know, all these historic traditions. Yeah. I mean, I knew that it would be fun and beautiful to visit the wineries, but, um, uh, that was a whole exciting world that it dovetailed so well with the science. And there's actually a kind of loose knit group of scientists around the world who are serious, you know, in their profession, uh, you know, very top notch scientists, but they also love winemaking itself and tasting wine. So they have different kind of insights than, uh, than the rest of us once they start looking at the DNA and the chemicals and the history. Wow, this is, it's fascinating too about Armenia because I know um, that you know Armenia is, is stepping up into kind of change. They're going through a change themselves in um, more welcoming visitors into their country and creating different, you know, like a community um, building communities. And it's changing in that mode. Do you think the wine part of it will help them in tourism and to um, you know bring more people to their country? Yes, uh, both 
Armenia and the Republic of Georgia. There's some tour guides and tours there that will give wine tours that take you into the region. Like Armenia has the oldest confirmed winemaking site in the world. It's about 6,000 years old in a cave where there was actually a treading place where they treaded the grapes and the juice flowed down in kind of a funnel into clay pots. And uh, they found, you know, both the remains of leaves and wine pips and stems and uh, so definitely a winemaking site, probably, you know, small quantities, probably 20, 30 gallons. Um, wow. And it was probably ritual, you know, at that time, 6,000 years ago, it looks like it was also a, a religious site. You know, it wasn't mm-hmm. like a bar. It was more a place you went to drink this very special uh, liquid, mm-hmm. you know, maybe around births or deaths or, you know, harvest uh, festivals. Mm-hmm. But yes, the Iranians and the Georgians are definitely doing wine tourism and there's some great tours that you can take and also try the food and see the mountains and the local fauna and everything else. That's amazing. I want to go. <laughs> I want to go. I really do. I've always had a fascination with Armenia for some reason of just, I don't, it just seems like such a beautiful land and, and it seems, yeah, this change and in going into more tourism, that's an exciting time. And I think it's, you know, it's, it's interesting, these lessons we can learn from these ancient places, you know, that have gone through so much and we can learn from, as Americans, it's still relatively a, a very young country um, when you think about Western civilization side of it, um, we can learn. And I wonder now um, with the native grapes that you're talking about and, and that movement towards utilizing Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel any time. Can I be real for a second? That goal you have to exercise and eat better? You really can do it, but nobody is going to do it for you. And nobody has to, because you can do it if you have the right tools and a community that cares about helping you get results. And that's us, Beachbody. It's as convenient as your TV or laptop, but you need to decide that you're worth it. Let us help you succeed. Here's how. Go to Beachbody.com to claim your free membership and start feeling great. Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel any time. Can I be real for a second? That goal you have to exercise and eat better? You really can do it, but nobody is going to do it for you. And nobody has to, because you can do it, if you have the right tools, and a community that cares about helping you get results. And that's us, Beachbody. It's as convenient as your TV or laptop, but you need to decide that you're worth it. Let us help you succeed. Here's how. Go to Beachbody.com to claim your free membership and start feeling great. grapes. If Native Americans were, were making anything with Native grapes, you know, back in the day. You know, that that's an interesting story because it appears that Native Americans did not make much wine, if at all. In the Southwest, they did make some fermented beverages, but it was more from cactus and yucca and things mm-hmm. like that. Um, and we, we just don't know why. You know, there's tremendous archaeological evidence for winemaking all throughout the Middle East and Europe and even in China. They made a different kind of wine, uh, more that combined a grape they had there with rice wine. But the Native Americans, just most tribes, there's just not evidence either either archaeological or in their oral histories um, for winemaking. And that may explain, you know, we know that some Native American peoples, you know, don't have a good tolerance or resistance to alcohol. That's actually a genetic difference in some cases. So they just did not... uh, just make it the way that Europeans did. And, you know, Africans made a lot of alcohol, palm wine, alcohol from dates and things like that. But 
Yeah, it, it, it's interesting to me, too, because of South Africa. I, I was raised in South Africa, and, and Nancy, um, my mom and co-host and co-publisher, she had a magazine over there. And so we were covering wine, and the wine there is, is completely different to here. And they were making wine with, like, oranges, and it was, it, and it's different than, like, the fruit wine you'll get from, you know, like in the Pacific Northwest. It, it was just absolutely different, and I, I can't really explain it because I haven't had it for years, but it was fun. <laughs> I'll say mm -hmm. that. It was fun as, as, a, as a, a young lady who just got into that world, but, and the whole culture is different because um, the wine was at, on the table, and because there was much of the, the French and Dutch influence, and and Portuguese, and we had a lot of Greek wines from when we were in, in South Africa. I remember uh, you go to a store. We didn't really hear as much about France as much as Greek wines for some reason. And here in this country, I never saw that much. Yeah, there's you rarely hear about Greek wines. You know, unless you go into a wine shop that you know has the different wines from around the world. But in South Africa, yeah, that it was. It, well, there was a quite a big Greek population too especially in the coastal communities. But I was wondering about how how that all started there. It's got to be from, you know, maybe the French and the Dutch coming over. I, I'm now like going, and, okay, and just, go ahead. Yep, and just a trading route. You know, the, uh, mm -hmm. you know, these trading routes, the Greeks were some of the first wine exporters, first the Egyptians and the Phoenicians, but then the Greeks. So, you know, that could go back a long time, you know, hundreds of years or, you know, who knows, maybe even longer than that, that somebody visited uh, Southern Africa and you know, brought case. some winemaking traditions. Yeah, it, it, it's fascinating to me. I get, in, I get geeked out on this, like how this food became this food over here and how it molded and changed by uh, travel and exploration, you know, and all these ex historic expeditions, how cultures connected and changed the food and changed the drink. And, you know, because we were so nomadic, too. So things changed according to the terrain as well. So it's not just the cultures mixing, it's, it's the terrain changing and taking a recipe and having to change it according to where you are, if you're nomadic. Absolutely, one of, one of the archeologists I interviewed, they're learning surprising details about the past. You know, the assumption always was that, you know, three or four or 5,000 years ago, local people just kind of ate what was nearby. And we knew that a few explorers ventured around, but when they analyzed the, DNA remains of some wine uh, in northern Israel from 3,000 years ago. They found cinnamon uh, residues, strains, and they assumed it was just cinnamon. You can get some cinnamon from Africa, but it turned out this DNA matched cinnamon from in the Indian subcontinent. So that meant some trader, and of course it was a variety of people. It wasn't just one person like taking mm -hmm. it, but that meant cinnamon was coming all the way to the Middle East from Asia, probably by the Silk Road or perhaps by ship, you know, it could have come by ship to the Arabian ports and then up into northern Israel. But so people were, you know, they certainly ate locally, but they also explored and did some real long distance trading. Wow. I like this. Especially like for this. things that tasted, especially for things that tasted good. And of course, and, spices. And, I mean, that's the way, yeah. that's the way coffee spread from you know, the Arabic countries into Europe and all the uh, exotic spices from the Far East came by the Silk Road. You know, the uh, people in the medieval era and the ancient world just loved the spices because they didn't, they weren't used to anything like them. They were used to salt, <laughs> which is fine. You know, salt's great, but um, 
Yeah. Imagine a world when we didn't, if you didn't have any of those spices and you tasted for the first time, you know, coriander or cumin or ginger or all those things. And and knowing that you're not going to die at that point, you know, because when you start testing things, you know, when you're like in the hunter-gatherer side of things, you start like, oh, let's try and eat this. And then, oops, so-and-so died over there. <laughs> Don't eat that right. again. You know what I mean? That was the trial, you know. Uh, it, it's really interesting to me, you know, for you writing this book, did you feel like you were actually writing the history of the world in some way? It gave me a new sense of looking at the past, you know. Um, I came to realize that ancient peoples all over the world, you know, really have much the same and had much the same emotions that we did, that we do. You know, certainly the technology is different. The religion, the language is different, but people got excited about things. They fell in love with things. They liked things that tasted good. They didn't like things that tasted bad. They, you know, sometimes went to war or then made peace. So the emotions were, have really stayed the same for, a long time and one scientist told me an interesting story that they know from research that the Bushmen in South Africa which is a very very old culture mm -hmm. I always thought Bushmen you know went foraging and would eat every single thing they found because you know they, it's a tough environment apparently Bushmen have real pref flavor preferences so when they have a choice they'll eat certain wild foods and then there are other wild foods that they don't like as much that they'll only eat when they're hungry so that tells us that, you know, human taste buds, you know, have probably mm. saved, stayed the same for 50, 100, maybe hundreds of thousands of years, that basic neural architecture that connects our, our, uh, our brain to our tongue and our, you know, smell facilities. That, that happy zone of really good flavor, you know, that is interesting about, you know, yeah, because there's there's food. I mean, I've had different foods around, you know, in different countries that we've lived and and traveled through, and and even in this country, you're like, okay, so why do why do you people over here think this tastes good? It doesn't taste good to me, um, but to them it tastes good. Or um, what started what you know, if you even look at peasant food and uh, you know from the ancient times or the historic times, I should say, you'd have they'd made do with things and then eventually now it's become like a staple that people love and um you know not wasting food it's interesting that whole evolution of you know even like eating the different organs of an animal uh, most people will go oh we don't want to do that but some people love it and what was something of oh we have to have that slop again has become revered almost you know in different cultures yeah. depending on and I learned that part of it is I focus on wine, but part of it with the food and wine is just psychological. Um, you know, our brains pre-process things before we even eat them. If you tell someone that a wine is a $90 bottle of wine and another bottle is a $10 bottle of wine, but it's actually the same wine, in a blind test, people will uniformly say the $90 wine is better. Um, so our brain does some pre-editing. Um, They've actually done really sneaky tests where they served people two glasses of white wine, but they added red food coloring to one, and the test subjects uniformly described the red wine as if it was a red wine, um, <laughs> taste-wise. That's funny. Uh, so, you know, that goes back to what you said about humans learning what foods are safe and what foods are not safe. And there's mm -hmm. one scientist, uh, Gavin Sachs, who point out that, you know, a lot of what we think about flavor actually happens in the brain. You know, 
yes, the mm. tongue senses things and the nose senses things, but our brain is what decides, you know, what to pay attention to and what to ignore. And sometimes that can close us off to, you know, good flavors and experiences. But then if we mm. just be a little more open-minded, you know, uh, these things do taste good. That's interesting because you look at chefs, how they plate food because, you know, you, you eat with your eyes first, you know, that sentimentality and it's mm -hmm. like, okay, we're going to do that. But then that brings me to, you know, even when people wine taste, they look at the color and they do the swirl and all of that, you know, but I wonder mm -hmm. about when we decided, okay, we have to start, you know, swirling it around, when we're going to smell it and look at the colors and say, it tastes like this, it tastes like that. Um, it's coffee, it's got leather and all that. Um, but when did all those, you know, when did all of that culture you know, start? And the pairing, the food and wine pairing thing, when did that start? You know, I came to a different conclusion than some other people. There were some, been some previous books that basically said, you know, all the ancient wine must have been terrible. You know, it wasn't sanitary. They didn't know what they were doing, you know. And some people suggest that we only started having good wine in the last couple of years. But the historical evidence doesn't really back that up. The Egyptians had all sorts of distinctions for types of wine. Good wine, very good wine, very, very, very good wine, and even uh, even higher quality that was you know, for ceremonies. And uh, the Greeks, the Romans, the ancient Hittites, there's all sorts of written records of people behaving just like we did, of sometimes returning wine if it wasn't a good enough quality or, you know, extolling the aromas of one particular type. So I would say at least four or 5,000 years ago, people started to, you know, choose certain varieties and even sometimes add particular spices to them, flavorings, you know, cinnamon in particular, or uh, mirror, which is kind of pine resin. Uh, hmm. And the Egyptians also had a whole range of, I guess you'd call it medicinal wine. They would mix in native herbs and things like that for particular ailments or particular times. So they were very aware with pairing uh, herbs with different types of wine and taking them, say, to go to sleep, or if you, you know, had a backache or were in childbirth or various things, they had Hundred, literally hundreds of different recipes. Wow, that's amazing. And yeah, wine for childbirth, that's not happening now, is it? But I think that something did happen about doctors saying now women should have wine uh, before childbirth or something. You, you know, clearly you shouldn't. Uh, I think the Egyptians, it would have been, you know, right at that time of labor. I mean, clearly nobody should be drinking wine, you know, while they're pregnant. But I yeah. think it was probably more more something for pain and for you know, mm. re relaxation, you know, during the actual labor itself. Wow, this is fascinating. Did you enjoy doing this process? I mean, and when did you know, okay, I'm going to stop and put it all into a book with this research? Because you could go off on different books on all, you know, just even on uh, Leonardo da Vinci's, uh, you know, grapevine. You could you could go off in that mm -hmm. <laughs> direction. I you know. kind of decided to stop when... Uh, I realized that China had a whole separate wine history and that it could not be in this book that I, and wow. you know, that also there are these other alcohol histories of Africa and Central America, but that those were different things. You know, it wasn't wine as we think of it. So I had to put a stop to it. And I also just realized the science is going to keep coming. So I'll either have to do follow-up books and articles, you know, I, I can't ever get anything in, everything in. Yeah, I, that's the thing, right? You can never do it all at one time. That We learned that that's in our travels. We think, okay, we're going to go to this destination. 
we're going to cover everything that we can get our hands off, every you know piece of history. And then we just realize we just keep going in circles. We just, you know, as we travel, we end up just, you're going to keep going back. So just get over it. You can't do it all at one time. It just doesn't work that way. So, uh, but it is such a fascinating book. I'm enjoying reading it and learning. And it's just, people, you're going to love it. You're going to love it. It reads like a novel. But uh, before you go, uh, Kevin, I have a, a wine time happy hour question for you. I want to know okay. if you could have a happy hour wine time with anyone in the world alive or passed on that you can just sit down and have a really good conversation who would it be where are you going to have that wine time with them and what are you going to drink and what are you going to talk about so i would have it with leonardo da vinci in his vineyard uh, across from the santa maria de grazi church where he paid in last supper and i visited how that vineyard had been resurrected, but it's a great story if he was given the vineyard as part payment for the painting for the last summer by the, the Duke of Milan, bequeathed him the land. And Leonardo kept records of what the vineyard was worth and how much it produced, and he actually left it to his servants and his will. It was probably a Malvasia wine, um, which is similar to what we'd call a Muscat. Uh, mm. So probably a white wine, maybe a little Swedish, but and I'd have so many questions for him. I'd want to ask him about his vineyard and his wines and the country village he grew up in. But I'd, of course, also want to ask him about uh, his paintings and art and his whole mm -hmm. life. And the idea that I could mix Leonardo with wine, thats I can't pass that up. So would you drink wine from his vineyard? <laughs> it's like, here, quick, absolutely. Oh, he, absolutely. He would have clearly been making wine there. Um, and uh, Or perhaps he might have taken the grapes to a nearby winery that would press them and make it uh, that we don't know for sure but that was very common back then that there were these kind of neighborhood wineries that would take the grapes from people but yeah i would expect i would hope that we'd be drinking his wine in his vineyard with cheese <laughs> the cheese. <laughs> Any, why not at, at that point i'd be whatever leonardo <laughs> shows i'd be fine with i wouldn't complain I know that is, that would be awesome. It would be awesome. But thank you so much for joining us here on Big Ben Radio. Uh, Kevin's book, everyone, Kevin Bigo says, Tasting the Past, the Science of Flavor and the Search for the Origins of Wine. Again, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Indie Books, all those great places. Uh, you can also go to his website and go see the map, too, of the, of the wine routes. Uh, and he's got some just interesting information on his site. Go to kevinbegos.com, and that's B-E-G-O-S. I'm just, you know, sharing that I can still spell after talking about wine. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> Kevin, we have a special song for you, and I just think it's okay. totally perfect uh, for your book. Um, it's called Holy Water, <laughs> and uh, it is uh, from... It's actually the title track from the latest album of the amazing blues artist, Alison August. And everyone, you can go to her website, alisonaugust.com. That's Alison with two L's. Uh, but here it is, Holy Waters. Thanks Thank so much for joining us, Kevin. It's been a true pleasure. Thank you, Lisa. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I've been working Many hours Oh, yes, I woke up a long time ago I aspire to draw on higher power But sometimes I just feel so low He don't know 
Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel any time. Can I be real for a second? That goal you have to exercise and eat better, you really can do it. But nobody is going to do it for you. And nobody has to because you can do it if you have the right tools and a community that cares about helping you get results. And that's us, Beachbody. It's as convenient as your TV or laptop, but you need to decide that you're worth it. Let us help you succeed. Here's how. Go to Beachbody.com to claim your free membership and start feeling great. Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel any time. Guys, are you trying to stay in 20-year-old shape into your 30s and 40s and finding it, well, impossible? Then you need to listen to this. Beachbody, the company that revolutionized getting ripped at home with P90X and Insanity, has a brand new program just for you called Lift 4. It's part lift. It's part hit. With total body shredding results in just 30 to 40 minutes a day, right at home on the Beachbody On Demand app. 
That's how you get killer results as an adult. Go to Beachbody.com to sign up now, and you can try Live 4 for free. That's Beachbody.com. We've all heard about wine clubs, but how about a wine club that keeps animal welfare at the forefront? We're happy to have Frances Gonzalez, the founder of Vegan Wines, join us on Big Blend Radio today to explain the need for vegan wines. Um, a lot of us would think that most wine is vegan, right? Because it's a great, but there's no cheese mixed in there. Um, but maybe there is. She's going to explain that to us and uh, also talk about her quest to find family-owned wineries producing the best wines, not just vegan wines, but the best. And uh, and what she does is she delivers them right to your door. So uh, with her club and also her online uh, shopping venue there, just go to veganwines.com. Welcome, Francis. How are you? I'm doing great, Lisa. Thank you for having me on your show. I'm excited. Very excited about this. I know um, on Big Blend Radio and in Big Blend magazines, a lot of times we talk about um, wildlife trafficking, animals, what happens to animals, livestock. Um, we talk about the benefits of being vegan. I know a lot of people, sometimes it's a spiritual reason. It could be a dietary reason, um, weight loss. Um, it could be also the animal side of it. And um, just you know, going on veganwines.com, it really came obvious to me that you're like, hey, we need to realize what, what is happening to animals to make wine. And um, there were things on your website I had no idea that it was that extensive of animal parts being used and even blood, right? Yeah, sadly, but yeah. Oh, wow. Wow. How did, how did you get started on the whole journey of saying, well, you know, I'm going to be vegan and then decide I'm going to, you know, go and open a business that is all about vegan wines. Well, I love wine. Um, and when I went to do my vacation, it went to the vacation in France that I found out that for the first time that there's egg whites in wines in the finding. And I was so shocked because I've been a vegan for so many years. Mm-hmm. To I felt betrayed. Uh, and I, I was like, how many other vegans probably do not even, are not aware? And my vacation turned into research. And I went and started finding out all the findings that are used, um, the the blood, the bone marrow, the casein, the isinglass, the gelatin, and so many other things. But I also found that other that you do not need to do this because if you had to, I would have stopped drinking wine, honestly. Where we can't have that. No, <laughs> <That's> not, <laughs> there'll be no stopping of the wine, uh, you know, consuming here. But you know, so when, where are all these parts going? Are they going in the soil? Are they used in in the actual juice of it all? Where where are these things going? Well, when when sometimes it says the biodynamic. It's um, the cow horns that are used in the fertilizing and also the fish fertilizing are used in the soil. So it does start from the soil and then it goes on to the fining, which is the egg white and the casein, the gelatin, the bone marrow and um, the milk as as well. So it's a lot that goes into it and we are not even aware of this because they do not have to put it on the label. Oh wow! So they don't have to put it on the label like other things. Like and well, we have a labeling. We have a labeling problem, I think, um, in this country in regards to 
chemicals, but now I didn't know that they didn't have to put that in. So how does a vegan know what's safe and what's not? Well, there is a site called Barnivore, which is, it's great. They, they do go out and they search for wines that are vegan, um, but they are very limited. And mm -hmm. uh, so the other thing that someone can do is actually call up the vineyard and ask them and to ask, mm -hmm. ask the winemaker and the wine owner. I always do that prior to visiting any vineyard. And also when you go out to restaurants, ask which ones are vegan. But remember that organic does not mean vegan. And a lot of restaurant owners and managers and waiters, they think this. So it's just very, you have to be very clear to them. Hmm. And then, you know, if, if, you know, there's wineries that are doing that, you know, and making vegan wines and using vegan practices, half the time you can't, you know, drive across the country to get them or go to France or, you know, so for you and you finding them, I mean, it's not something that you can always order online from them, right? Not, not every winery is even open to the public to get the wine. That is correct. Yes, that's mm -hmm. correct. A lot of the wineries that I go to, because I go to small family vineyards, definitely always family vineyards. And a lot of them, when I first ask them, they're like, no, we don't distribute. And then when they hear what it's about and that I'm introducing the wine to our mm -hmm. club members, um, they open the door and they let me order uh, once everything is verified that they absolutely use no animal products from the soil to the fining. Mm, okay, so um, none, none in there. And so doesn't it also prove that you can have good wine without using all the animal products? Yes, because what the small family vineyards do is that they start from the grape. So they make sure that everything goes according to nature, the harvest, everything perfectly as possible until it gets mm. to start the process of making the wine. A lot of times when we use the finding the animal byproducts is to alter the taste and your experience with the wine. So it's not nature making your wine, it's, it's chemicals. Okay, so it's, all right. Wow, so, that, so the wines, I mean, do, do they taste any worse or better to you? I mean, when when you go out and taste, I mean, are you going, okay, this is good wine, you know, this this is, we yes. don't need all that when you're, when you're tasting them. Exactly. First, the alcohol content is lower, unlike it should be. Uh -huh. uh, and also, every harvest is supposed to taste different because nature is different every year. So the way the grape is harvest is different every year. So you want to taste that. Um, mm that difference and you do you do taste you do they're more lighter they're more refreshing and beautiful uh when they're they're let they let nature do its thing i agree with that i absolutely agree so where do most of your wines come from for the for the club and and also for your website because i know you have your online store as well yes they're mostly i started out in california of course one mm -hmm. of the best wine countries Sure. And so now I've gotten familiar with a lot of the family vineyards in the Napa and Sonoma area. So now we're going next to Finger Lakes. But we do have uh, two wines that we are shipping in, importing from 
Bordeaux. And oh, we wow. will be the only exclusive distributors for that, those two wines. And they oh, will wow. be on the website very soon. So, and everyone, veganwines.com, go check it out there. And they're also on all social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Um, so how does the actual club work? How often do we get a shipment is what I want to know. And how many bottles do we get? <laughs> get to the real stuff here. <laughs> well, we have three levels. Actually, we have four. But we have a oh. starter club, which is 25 and under. Uh, and that includes a red, a white. Uh, rosé and we have a two bottle you you can either do a three starter bottle every other month or two bottle every month it's it's up to you but they're both 25 and under and then we have the standard club which is also uh, either it's a mix of red white or rosé and um, that one is at 135 um, per month for that includes shipping and then we have the red lovers club which that was put there upon popular demand and those are three reds of course of different varieties mm. and uh, that those the standard and the red lovers is every other month nice nice and so people get it they have a way of knowing that these are you know ethically sourced and you know, and there's the animal side of it, but it, I think also people are looking for things that are clean to drink. You know, um, I know in the wine world and and the beer world and even the distilleries, we're always looking for whatever we put in our body. We wanted to be as clean as possible. So, uh, do you see people, you know, joining the club for those reasons, just for the health part of it? Yes, and we also every wine that gets shipped. I personally visited the vineyard. So it's nothing that I Google or just verified over email or phone. I actually went to the vineyard to meet the owner, the winemaker. So there's always a story on my visit. And mm-hmm. I want I want the members to feel like they were there, that they mm-hmm. they were part of that visit. So I asked the vineyard owners and the winemakers questions and I I we put that all together and we put it in a brochure along with a recipe that is oh, originally nice put together for each bottle to pair with each bottle and also um, tasting notes. We put all that in a brochure and we send it out with the wine. That's nice. And that's, so it's going to be a vegan recipe, right? To go with the vegan wine? Yes. Mm. Wow. And I'm glad you're doing rosé too. Because summer's here. And there's Mm -hmm. something about rosé in summer, you know, because I love red wine, but it, sometimes it, you know, we get hot out here. I'm just saying out here in the desert of Tucson. gets a little warm, but we have wonderful wineries. But there's something about, you know, having, a, you know, I love my Morvedres and, you know, uh, Malbecs and, you know, that, that Cabernets. And, you know, so I, I love, you know, a nice big jammy red wine. But when it gets to summertime, not so, you know, you want to kind of have like a little lighter. Um, and I just always find like rosé has that balance. And, and I can have that little bit of, I don't know, I know it's not red, but it gives me that little, I don't know, that little tang. <laughs> <It makes me laughs> so I'm glad you have rosés. That's that's awesome. It, it's the perfect thing for summertime. What's What would you say right now for a summer picnic? What, let's, let's see, I want to know this because you're, you're out in the, going in the Finger Lakes area and all that. Now, for you to go out on a summer picnic, 
what vegan wine would you choose from your club or, or online store and what are you going to pair with it for a picnic, a summer picnic? And where? Where are you going to go? Oh, that's a good question. That's a list right yeah. there. Where am I going to go? <laughs> yeah, yeah, because I know There's you so travel many good a lot. Places. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we, we're, we're going to Finger Lakes. That's our next. And then we're going to Italy. We're going to Greece. Uh, oh. And we're going back to France. So we are going to start importing more wines as well. Uh, but for a picnic, I mean, I, I right now we just um, we were sent uh, a rosé from Bocchiche in um, in Paso Robles, and their rosé mm. is so oh my, it's very delicious, very refreshing. Uh, mm. So that would that would be what I would bring along with the picnic, along with my vegan food. <laughs> All right, with some vegan food. I know. I love that you're pairing the recipes. That's fantastic because isn't your partner also a chef? Yes, she's a chef um, from Norway. Her name is Sunny Vendara. And uh, she makes original recipe for each bottle and pairs it perfectly because I go through her house many times to test it out. And I love that part of my job. <laughs> I'm going to say, okay, listen, you're traveling the world, you're traveling the country, you get a, you know, you've got a chef going here, try this for this wine, and you get to taste it all. I'm sorry, but like, what a sad business you started. <laughs> I love my job. <laughs> I, I think I think it's awesome too. Um, Everyone again, uh, go to veganwines.com and thank you so much for joining us here on Big Blend Radio, Francis. It's been a real pleasure and very, very excited about what you're doing. And I think um, we're in this age of people opening these um, ethically and socially conscious businesses and what you're doing absolutely is one of those, you know, great businesses. And you're also teaching us about wines around the world. And um, we like that. That's a great way of educating us all uh, about what's out there. I think sometimes we get stuck on the same wine. And I mean, that can't last very long because, you know, eventually you have to have new grapes. <laughs> so, you know what I mean? <laughs> that's the thing. That's the sad thing. It's like when you really love a certain wine, you know, there's only so much that's made out of it. Um, so especially with the small, you know, vineyards and family owned vineyards that you work with, but, um, I think you're, you're doing a great education part of it too. So everyone, veganwines.com. And we want to thank Jeremy's on the Hill, California style bistro up in San Diego's mountains in Julian, California, uh, for sponsoring today's episode. Jeremy is known for serving, serving farm to table cuisine, uh, local wines, local brews, uh, vegan food. Uh, organic food, gluten-free food. In fact, his own farm is right across the street. I mean, he just harvest in the morning, come in and cook what's what's there, and uh, delicious food, and the only Cordon Bleu trained chef in the region. So check it out. Go to jeremysonthehill.com. And when I say he makes vegan food, I mean, it's really good vegan food. It's not, here's your French fries. That happens in some areas that you visit. You know what I'm talking about, right, Francis? When, you know, some areas, it's like, here's your salad with, you know, iceberg and a piece of carrot, or here's your baked potato, um, but we don't have any condiments for you to use. (laughs) 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 So I just appreciate restaurants that really embrace vegan food and and go for it 100%. Uh, But we have a song for you because it's summer and you're traveling around. This is called Summer Wine, and it is from the Fan Faves album by Shelley King out of Austin. And you can go to ShellyKing.com to learn more. But here it is, Summer Wine. 
Thanks so much, Francis. Thank you, Lisa. champagne Sundays emergencies so like we needed to run out and get some champagne or Prosecco we like to have Prosecco too and um, it's right before the show airs especially as we travel the country and then we realized you know we need to get that cold what do we do 
And, I mean, things will pop before you think. And um, we need to talk about temperature of champagne, wine, and serving it and storing it. And so it's time for Wine 101 with Hillary Larson. Again, she's a... Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel any time. You know what's wrong with health and fitness? You weaponize it against yourself. Why didn't you go to the gym today? You're so lazy. Ah, why did you eat that? You have no self-control. Stop it. At Beachbody, we think training and caring for your body in a way that works best for you should be about loving yourself. Let us help you without all the judgment. Here's how. Go to Beachbody.com to claim your free membership and start feeling great. Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel any time. Can I be real for a second? That goal you have to exercise and eat better, you really can do it. But nobody is going to do it for you. And nobody has to because you can do it if you have the right tools and a community that cares about helping you get results. And that's us, Beachbody. It's as convenient as your TV or laptop, but you need to decide that you're worth it. Let us help you succeed. Here's how. Go to Beachbody.com to claim your free membership and start feeling great. Sommelier and a wine educator, the co-owner of Northwinds Wine Consulting and one of our Big Blend Radio experts and food, wine, and travel writer contributors. If you go to Blend Radio on tv.com you'll see her in our expert department and you'll be able to see her articles and interviews there but also go to her website northwindswineconsulting.com she works with wineries and you know also restaurants and everybody in the hospitality industry that works with wine and so if you even pour a glass of wine in your business call her so it's 1-800-HILLARY I'm kidding that's not her phone number <laughs> but anyway Hillary welcome back and um what do we do when we have these Champagne Sundays emergencies? Because then I run and I go, do I put it in the freezer? And that doesn't work. And then things do pop. Like it's, They it's do. Crazy. Yes, the freezer can be the enemy, especially if you forget that you put something oh. in there. Oh. It's, it's hard. Like on the road, when we were traveling on the road, and, and then, okay, this is a true emergency. It's a, su- a Sunday, and you go, you know, go to get Champagne or Prosecco sometimes, whatever we can do. And sorry, ma'am, you're in the dry county. <laughs> now, that's a true emergency. But uh, and we've That there. is. Um, and that one I can't help you with. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, we have friends in places. Even though you didn't know it when you were there, people come out and they, they help you. And, it, and at that point, it doesn't matter what they're giving you. It can be whatever. <laughs> it's like, okay, there's a bubble in it. We're going for it. And if it's still warm, we're doing it because tradition – by golly, is tradition. But, yeah, I mean, how many times have we had dinner parties and suddenly forgot to take, you know, you may have bought wine or something, and then you didn't cool it, you didn't, you know, what do we do at that point? Because I know, that's, don't want to be I think that's happened to wine. all of us. But, actually, yeah. you can chill a bottle of wine down pretty quickly. The fastest way is with ice water, not just ice, but ice water. So if you get yourself... Um, you know, some of us have oh. beautiful wine coolers made specifically for this. But, hey, just an, a bucket would do. Fill it with some ice. Put some water in there so you have a nice soup of ice and water. Throw in a pinch of regular table salt and put your, uh, submerge your bottles in that. And after about, well, depending on what wine it is and how cold you want to get it, it should be at a nice drinking temperature in, say, 15 minutes. Oh, so that's what I'm going to do in the next uh, – and on the road we can do that. You can get Yes, ice. definitely. 
Okay. You Ice have and just water. Just make sure life. that you take uh, some. If you're <laughs> on the road, what I find is really great, and I buy mine in France, but I'm sure you can find them online here. They're made of like a, an, a, a soft acrylic-y plastic, and they look like a little mm-hmm. bag, a tall, thin bag with little handles on the top, and they fold flat. And then you can take that with you when you're traveling, take it down to the ice machine, put your ice in, get it back to the room, and put your water in, and stand your bottle up in it, and you're good to go. Right on. We like this. We like this. I want one of those. I know. They're wonderful. So, okay, this is interesting because I'm going back to our champagne hikes, you know, Nancy and I are into this. Hummingbirds like it. There's something about the champagne. I don't, and and it's different. If you take white wine or red wine, it's different. Champagne, for some reason, hummingbirds circle, and butterflies. Really, that's so, interesting. I don't know if it's the yeast thing, because it's, I don't know about the yeast differences between them all. But it seems to me like there's a difference. Um, but anyway, when we travel, half the time we don't do the big cooler with the ice and all that stuff. But now I'm thinking that that would work better. We have like in those cooler bags and you put your little blue ice blocks in. And half mm-hmm. the time I wrap the bottles with these blue ice things, you know, those little freezer things. Yeah. With, you know, I take like a dishcloth and I'll wrap it around. But now I'm thinking that I should just go and get ice and water and put it in the cooler and, and take that instead. I just never thought that way. Yeah, that's, that's the quickest quicker. way to chill your wine down. I mean, you can okay. put it in the freezer, but if you do, it actually no. takes a little bit longer than the ice water method, and you do risk, you know, especially if you've got a party going on or something and you get busy and you're distracted mm-hmm. and you forget that your wine is in there, uh, yeah. and the next thing you know, you've got a winesicle coming out of the top of the bottle. And once yeah, it's frozen, the wine's pretty well gone. That happened, that, that's happened to my beer before, and then yes. things can happen, I'm just saying. <laughs> Because, like, I like things with bubbles. Beer and champagne go well. Uh, but anyway, so, so let's, let's talk about temperatures of wine. Um, so some of us have wine coolers, okay? Mm-hmm. Let's talk about that. Do you have a wine cooler, like, per kind of wine, or do you have a specific temperature that red, white, and champagne are set at, like, if you drink all of it, like us? So if you have um, a wine fridge, you can yeah. get a lot of models that have uh, usually two different zones in them. So you can have two different temperature settings. So uh, you know, if you're going to just be cellaring your wine and keeping it uh, in a perfect condition and perfect scenario so that you can enjoy it a year or so down the road, you can just take your wine fridge and set it around between 50 and 56. And that'll be mm-hmm. just great. That'll keep it just like it was in some beautiful, dark, damp Parisian wine cellar. If you're what? going to be drinking your wines and you're just keeping them in there, but you pull them out at a regular basis, uh, then you probably want to have the t- a lot of the times people take the top part of their uh, wine fridge and set it to around uh, 40, 45 degrees and then they'll keep their whites and their sparkling wines and sometimes the rosés in that part, and then keep the bottom half a little warmer, say around that 55 to 58 degrees, and keep mm. the red wines in that bottom section. Okay. And then okay, if now. you pull your wine out and you want it a little cooler, 
you can always put it in the fridge or in that ice bucket. And if you want, if your reds come out and they're just a little bit warm, you can always just, um, you know, run them under a warm tap for a few minutes or submerge them in some warm water for a few minutes. Okay, so yeah, so you at this point, if you do not put ice cubes in your wine, you keep the wine bottle in the ice, but you do not put the ice cube in the wine. Am I right with that? No, I'm not an advocate of putting ice cubes in wine, <laughs> although I have to say I've even seen people in France do that. The wine capital so, of the world, right? And I've seen lots of people do it. I don't like it because ice melts and it's going to dilute my wine, and I don't want And what that. if it's bad water? Like, what if the ice is bad? Like, you know, because I, I'm true. starting to think that, our wine is probably better quality than our water these days. <laughs> you know? I think so. Well, that's why the, the Romans and the Greeks drank so much wine, was because the water wasn't really suitable for consumption. So they drank wine and sometimes beer instead. Wow. Now, we've, we've put ice in our wine because if you're in a really hot area, and, and we have been in, I mean, crazy temperatures, and you are outside, or and you're in a place like that, and you're like, uh, that's it. You're at this point. I want my glass of wine. Something. I'm going to put ice in it, and it's the way it is. It just it changes it. It's not the same. You're already not in a normal place. You know what I mean? So at that point, it really doesn't matter. Like if you're already doing that, you're already at that place. You know, and it's like if you're outside and it's then you're, if it's patio wine or whatever, you're doing that. That's different than. Um, but you're not going to do it with your $100 bottle of wine. You're not going to put oh, ice cubes in no, it, right? Please. That's, don't. You're, <laughs> I know. There's, there's like, wine at the poolside. There's wine for all occasions, and, and treat it appropriately with that. Exactly, exactly. You really, uh, the, the ice bucket thing, because we have, like, a nice, beautiful wine bucket, like you would put champagne or wine in yeah. it. And I remember you being on a show talking about, you know, well, people have wine buckets, and you were describing one, and it's a ceramic, and I'm like, we have one right there that we just unpacked, and we didn't even think Oh, I remember one. that. Yeah, that's right when we were talking about how do you keep your your chilled bottle of yeah. wine cool when you're yeah. sitting on your patio enjoying the sunset. And those yeah, are those here nice in the uh, ceramic or yeah. acrylic double-walled chillers. They don't actually cool your wine down but once you take a chilled bottle and put it inside it'll keep it at a constant temperature so we don't put ice in there then you just let it be no or do you put the ice in there no with those ceramic chillers and the double walled acrylic they're basically just to uh, hold the wine at a certain temperature so you've already got your bottle of white wine at the perfect temperature, you've taken it out of your refrigerator or out of the ice bucket, and you want to take it outside or somewhere that's warmer, you don't want it to warm up while you're, you know, sipping away. So if you put it in yeah. one of these coolers, it'll just keep it at the right temperature so you can enjoy every sip. Well, oopsie. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm, glad, I'm glad you told me that. So now, because you're on the show, and I know you and Rosé, right, um, yeah. So is rosé temperature the same as white wine or red wine? <laughs> rosé usually falls sort of in the middle. You know, rosés, I like to have them, you know, the lighter the wine or a sparkling wine, you want it colder. If a wine has, you know, it's a, a, a white wine that has lots and lots of beautiful aromas or a rosé, 
I like to have that just a little bit warmer, say around 45, 50 degrees, somewhere around there. So just a okay, little bit so, warmer. So cool. I have to ask, are you, are you, do you have one of those thermometers that people use to cook with? Do you go stick that in your wine glass to find out well, if it's the right temperature? I, I, I have actually a wine thermometer. Okay, so there's a wine thermometer. Okay, this yes. is important news. Okay. Yes, you can get little one. thermometers that are specifically for wine, and some of them have little hooks or little uh, balancing things so you can rest it on the edge of your glass. I mean, Seriously? I don't use it very often, but we have done some experiments uh, where we'll take uh, a wine and we'll pour it in a couple of different, maybe three samples of it, and have them at different temperatures and see what the uh, difference is in the way the wine tastes and smells. And it does make a difference. Wow. It does. It, this, yeah. is, this is amazing stuff. I geek out on it. I, I think it's so cool because it's like, to me, what's so important is the winemaker goes through so much to, to grow the grapes, harvest the grapes, then make the wine. I mean, how, how long does it take to actually make a bottle of wine for it to be out and being poured? Like, what is, how long are we looking at in, in general? Like, well, it depends. White different. wines are the first wines to come out. So the, the grapes are harvested in September. So let's say last month they harvested uh, Pinot Gris. Mm-hmm. It will probably be, most wines will probably put that in bottle in, say, February, March, somewhere around there. And then it'll be on the shelves uh, anywhere from a couple of months to, you know, from, say, two to six or eight months later. Uh, other wines, red wines, of course, they take longer because they go from once they're uh, fermented, then they go in the barrel to rest and develop their flavors and mature. So those usually take, uh, if the grapes are picked in September, they're not, they're probably in barrel for about a year, two years, or three years, and then they go into bottle. So white wow. wine's much faster from, you know, vineyard to your glass. And then red wines, and then uh, champagnes are one of the longer ones, too, because those are cellared for quite a long time. But what's interesting about the red wine is, like, you tend to drink that a little slower, and you tend to savor that a little bit more. Whereas the lighter wines, you know, like, you know, I was laughing about patio wines, but, you know, white wines, too, depending, you know, there's this this um, savor it moment. But, you know, we were talking about this on the show before where, you know, the the white wine comes out earlier and you start with champagne or sometimes end with champagne, depending what's going on. But um, there's that, it's interesting. It seems like it's the march of the white wines and we take our time <laughs> and then finally we well, get to the red. Well, and I think white wines too, they're just, because most of them, not all, but a lot of white wine varieties are lighter and more refreshing and they are served mm-hmm. chilled. So they're a nice way to sort of begin your meal. You know, they're yeah. just, they perk up your taste, and the acidity of the wine perks up your taste buds and, and gets your mouth salivating and, and ready to enjoy your meal. And they mm. tend to go uh, better with, say, starters like uh, seafood or salads and, and sort of the lighter things that mm-hmm. we begin a meal with, whereas the red wines maybe come later because 
you've already got your palate warmed up and and you've had some food and then you have the the bigger wines they go with the bigger food with your bigger yes. proteins your meats and so on and so yeah definitely there's a method to the madness it, yeah that's what i'm saying it's, you know it's like it's it's just interesting how it all kind of has its cycle and how the cycles in, unite in a way. That's that's mm-hmm. what I'm saying. That's uh, it's interesting. And then we haven't even talked about sheep yet and biodynamic wine. You know, there's, so there's cycles there. There's environmental cycles that happen mm-hmm. with wine. So very cool stuff. Thank you so much for giving us some tips on temperature. Again, everyone, you can go to NorthwindsWineConsulting.com, and also uh, she is on Twitter. Hillary's on Twitter, so you can go to Northwinds Wine. Uh, Northwinds Wine on Facebook and Instagram, and again, go to blendradioandtv.com, and you'll find Hillary under the expert department, or just type in Hillary on and any of the search boxes of both our websites, also nationalparktraveling.com, because she also writes about wine destinations there as well. Thank you so much, Hillary. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. We want to give a big shout-out and thanks to our guest today on Big Blend Radio's special World of Wine show, Kevin Bigos, the author of Tasting the Past, The Science of Flavor, and The Search for the Origins of Wine. We also spoke with Francis Gonzalez, the founder of veganwines.com, and sommelier Hilary Larson, co-founder of Northwinds Wine Consulting. Also, again, another shout-out and thank you to today's show sponsors, the International Food, Wine, and Travel Writers Association, a global network of journalists who cover the hospitality and lifestyle fields and the people who promote them. You can visit them at ifwtwa.org. And Jeremy's on the Hill California-style bistro serving farm-to-table food and local beers and wines up in San Diego's beautiful mountain country. Check it out at uh, jeremysonthehill.com. As always, thank you listeners for joining us here on Big Blend Radio. We air Monday through Thursdays at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time, and Fridays and Sundays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time. You can visit us at bigblendradio.com to see the upcoming show schedule and also to click through to listen on demand to one of your through one of your favorite podcast outlets. And now it's time to close with some rock and blues from Johnny Master and the Mama's Boys. Here's their song Wine Headed and you can keep up with them at johnnymastro.com. <laughs> When you see your baby low down in the street, back it out for nickel man, everyone she meet. Little girl used to be nice and fine. Shot at the title got knocked out by wine. She's wine-headed. His big hand, she gonna slide right onto the promised land. She's 
Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel any time. Can I be real for a second? That goal you have to exercise and eat better, you really can do it. But nobody is going to do it for you. And nobody has to because you can do it if you have the right tools and a community that cares about helping you get results. And that's us, Beachbody. It's as convenient as your TV or laptop, but you need to decide that you're worth it. Let us help you succeed. Here's how. Go to Beachbody.com to claim your free membership and start feeling great.